Father God, thank you that these ancient words are living words and that through them you speak to us today. We pray that you would do that now by your Holy Spirit. Equip us to live in your world today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now we know, don't we, that the Bible speaks to Christians and it speaks too to the world. It's for all people. And therefore it, it equips us to speak to the world. As if, if we're Christians trusting in Jesus today, it helps us to think, what does this message mean for our friends and our colleagues? And this chapter that we've got in front of us this evening helps us especially to think, what does a Christian worldview look like? And how does that challenge a non-Christian one? How does it speak into that? So we're going to be thinking particularly about that um, this evening and how it can, can help us and equip us in our, um, in our evangelism if we're trusting Jesus. And uh, indeed, if we're not yet there, how it directly challenges us in the way that we are living and approaching the world. Now, Jordan Peterson is a Canadian clinical psychologist who's been taking the uh, internet by storm in recent months. Um, I don't know if you, you may use the tube and you may have seen uh, his book being advertised or you might have seen it online in various places. It's called 12 Rules for Life, An Antidote to Chaos. And it's reached number one in, on Amazon in the US, and number four in the UK. Um, the adverts that I've seen feature one of those rules, one of those 12 rules selected at random and it just, the, the poster just has the rule on it. So here's a selection of them. Stand up straight with your shoulders back. It's a good one. Uh, make friends with people who want the best for you. Set your house in perfect order before you criticize the world. Do not bother children when they are skateboarding. And this one is particularly uh, ch challenging. Pet a cat when you encounter one in the street. Now, if you want to know exactly what he's getting at, uh, you'll have to uh, look at the book. He's been doing a publicity tour for this book, which led him into a now infamous half-hour interview on Channel 4 News with Kathy Newman. And the video of this interview on YouTube has been uh, viewed 8 million times, just under, I think. It's a fascinating encounter between a journalist who's determined to reduce her subject to sound bites that make him look ridiculous and a guy who knows his stuff so well that he just won't let that happen. Now, it's fair to say that this guy, Jordan Peterson, is divisive. So particularly some young men have hailed him as the guy who has saved their life through his online lectures. They pretty much see him as the kind of the Messiah. He's on that kind of level for them. Um, others see him as representing everything that is wrong with the alt-right. Uh, though he himself would deny that he's seeking to kind of speak for that movement or identify with it. Now, I, I've been uh, reading this book and I've been looking at some of the things he's been saying just to see, you know, what, what, what's going on there. And the heart of what he says is the idea that the purpose of life is to find or make order where there is chaos. Make order where there is chaos. Now, listen to how he describes chaos. Chaos is the domain of ignorance itself. It's unexplored territory. Chaos is what extends externally and without limit beyond the boundaries of all states, all ideas, 
and all disciplines. It's the foreigner, the stranger, the member of another gang, the rustle in the bushes in the night time, the monster under the bed, the hidden anger of your mother, the sickness of your child. Chaos is the despair and horror you feel when you've been profoundly betrayed. It's the place you end up when things fall apart, when your dreams die, your career collapses, or your marriage ends. It's the underworld of fairy tale and myth, where the dragon and the gold it guards eternally coexist. Chaos is where we are when we don't know where we are, and what we're doing when we don't know what we're doing. It is, in short, all those things and situations we neither know nor understand. Now, you may never have heard of Jordan Peterson. It doesn't really matter either way. But can you identify with that description of chaos, of life feeling out of control, beyond our grasp? All human beings spend their lives seeking to make sense of the world around us, seeking to, make, <clears throat> to bring order in the chaos. And as we do that, we will be dealing with fundamental questions, whether we articulate those questions or not. We'll be thinking, what determines who I can trust, how I should live, and even more deeply, why I am here? I guess many of us might answer those questions like this, at least if we're not thinking from a a biblical point of view. Who can I trust? Well, no one, really. I'm, I'm not sure I can even trust myself. But since I have no better options, I'll go with that most of the time and maybe trust a few others occasionally. How should I live? Well, I'm basically free to do what I want, as long as it doesn't hurt other people. Why am I here? Well, I, you know, I don't really know, and I don't really care, but I do know where the wine is kept, and there's a new series on Netflix, and we're doing the kitchen up, and there's this amazing new artisan coffee place, and there's enough going on most of the time to distract from those ultimate questions and the reality that much of life is chaos until eventually death inevitably claims us but we try not to think too much about that now Jordan Peterson has a good go at addressing that chaos he even quotes the Bible in significant amounts But his solution amounts to something like this. He's not a Christian himself. His solution amounts to something like this. The only person who can solve your problems is you. So you better shape up, work hard, face the monsters in the chaos, and here are some rules that will help you do that. Now the question is whether a few rules, a few ideas can really change you and change the world. Can they really deal with the chaos, the disorder that is beneath the surface in every human heart? Now as we've been looking at the the book of Proverbs over the last uh, month or two, we've been finding that wisdom that actually addresses real life in in, uh, in the 21st century as we live it today. It claims to do the same kind of thing that Jordan Peterson thinks he's trying to do as a clinical psychologist. But it's making a slightly different claim. And it's addressing those deepest questions that we have about life. It's addressing those questions. Who can I trust? How do I live? Why am I here? And and many others like them. But it tells us that only God's wisdom can bring order out of that chaos that we've just described. Peterson has the right diagnosis, but he doesn't get the solution. 
We need to look here in God's word and see how it deals with those deepest questions. So let's do that as we look then at chapter 8. First of all, verses 1 to 11 addresses that question, who can I trust? Now we've seen, haven't we, that Proverbs personifies wisdom as a lady calling out in the streets. She calls out, verse 1, she raises her voice, listen, she says, verse 6, I have worthy things to say, I speak the truth, nothing I say is crooked or perverse. Now think about it, we're in an age of uh, fake news and scams and hidden motives and agendas. You know, can anyone really take this seriously in the 21st century? You know, just because God's wisdom claims to be the truth, well, that doesn't make it the truth, does it? There's that phrase, isn't there? Lies, lies will travel halfway around the world before the truth has got its boots on. And a study showed this week that that is absolutely true when it comes to fake news on Twitter. So fake news is 70% more likely to be retweeted and reaches people six times faster than real news. So if we know anything today, we know that we can't take anything or anyone at face value. But the funny thing is, Solomon, writing this 3,000 years ago, knows that too. So one of the things he says, as we've seen, as he, as he writes to his son, is don't be fooled, don't be fooled by appearances. So he sets up these two women, along with Lady Wisdom, we have Lady Folly. And Lady Folly was there in chapter 7, we saw her a couple of weeks ago, if you were here. And if you look, actually, the speech that began my son in chapter 7, verse 1, is still carrying on in chapter 8. And his warning about Lady Folly was she would lead this son astray. She would lead him into adultery into marrying unwisely. We saw that warning two weeks ago about marrying non-Christians. But Lady Folly was all about appearances, inviting this young man to a one-night stand. Don't think about tomorrow. Don't think about the consequences. Just enjoy the moment. And here is Lady Wisdom saying, on the other hand, stick with what I have to say. For life, because I am better than silver and gold and rubies. And the fact that she even has to point that out reminds us that it's not obvious that God's wisdom is worth having at face value when you look at appearances. Which is exactly what a lot of people say about the Christian faith, isn't it? Why bother with an ancient book? What a strange thing you do on a Sunday. What do you mean you go and sit in a building and open this book that was written thousands of years ago? What's the point of that? Why bother with this guy, Jesus, who, who lived in another era, another culture, didn't have any of the technology and the advantages and the experiences that we have today? Well, you know, what's the point of that? And then you Christians, with that, you bring all these rules and restrictions. You know, it looks so restrictive to go with God's wisdom. But do you see what Solomon says, verse 9 in chapter 8? To the discerning... All that Lady Wisdom says is right. So what's he saying then? He's saying, well, who can you trust? Don't just take her word for it. Dig, dig deeper and be discerning and find that God's wisdom works. See, if you do that with Lady Folly, you'll find that her path leads down to death in the last verse of chapter, of chapter 7. But with wisdom, you will find that it's worth more than anything else the world can offer. 
C.S. Lewis talked about this in a book he wrote called Surprised by Joy. You know, many people would think that joy would be the last thing you'd find in Christian faith. Surely, you know, the best place to look for joy is, is where human beings have always looked for joy, in sex, in money, in power. And it's not that there's no joy in those things, but rather that in settling for those things and thinking, well, that, that's enough, that's enough for me. He says, well, actually, no, it's not that your desires are too strong, it's that your desires are too weak. And he goes on like this, he says, we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We're far too easily pleased. See, the wisdom that Solomon is talking about points us ultimately to Jesus. And ultimately, he is the one who says to every human being, you can trust me, so will you trust me? And so that's what we need to do with our friends, isn't it, when they're looking into things. We need to take them to Jesus. We need to show them Jesus in the Gospels. And we need to help them to see actually this guy claims to be wise, but look at him, look at his life, study his life, see how he lived. You can trust this guy. See how every word he spoke was a word in place, a word in season for the situation. No falsehood. Nothing rash, nothing that he would regret later. This is a guy who was entirely intentional and trustworthy in everything he said and did. And he says, will you trust me with your life? We need to help people to go beneath the surface, to dig deeper, to be discerning and to see the value of God's wisdom. This is worth trusting in this era of, of fake news and everything else. So that's the first thing then. Who can I trust? So the second kind of big life question that, that comes up in these verses in the next section, verses 12 to 21, how do I live? So look at verse 13. Wisdom is speaking. I, uh, to fear the Lord is to hate evil. I hate pride and arrogance, evil behavior and perverse speech. Now, arrogance is never attractive, is it, in, in anyone? But, but plenty of people would say, you Christians, you're the ones who are arrogant, with such an arrogance about, the, you know, with such a certainty about the way you talk about God, how can you be so sure? And there's an American atheist neuroscientist called Sam Harris, and he puts it like this in a book he wrote called Letter to a Christian Nation. He says, an average Christian in an average church listening to an average Sunday sermon has achieved a level of arrogance simply unimaginable in scientific discourse. And there have been some extraordinarily arrogant scientists. He goes on, there is in fact no worldview more reprehensible in its arrogance than that of a religious believer. Saying things like, the creator of the universe takes an interest in me, approves of me, loves me and will reward me after death and so on. You know, and then to speak beyond that with certainty about what is right and what is wrong, well, surely that is, is the epitome of arrogance in the 21st century. How can we be so sure? But the thing is, every human being lives by some kind of code. 
some kind of framework by which we decide what is right and wrong. And the question is simply, where do we get that framework from? And if there is a God who made the world and who made each one of us, shouldn't we be looking to him for that framework? Rather than just making it up ourselves or just seeing what everyone else does and do, and do that. And just sort of randomly choosing what is right and wrong, well, that is going to be a recipe for chaos. A few years ago, there was a conversation overheard on a radio in Canada between an American aircraft carrier and an unidentified Canadian voice. I think we've got representatives of both nations here, so you can fight about this later. But uh, the aircraft carrier comes through on the radio saying, please divert your course 15 degrees to the north to avoid a collision. And the voice comes back saying, recommend you divert your course 15 degrees to the south to avoid a collision. The American says, this is the captain of a US Navy ship. I say again, divert your course. The voice says, no. I say again, you divert your course. The American voice says, this is the aircraft carrier USS Lincoln, the second largest ship in the United States Atlantic Fleet. We are accompanied by three destroyers, three cruisers, and numerous support vessels. I demand that you change your course 15 degrees north, that's 15 degrees north, or countermeasures will be undertaken to ensure the safety of this ship. And the voice comes back. This is a lighthouse. You're cool. See, the fact is, isn't it, whatever we say about God, if God actually is there, we can try insisting that we're allowed to continue as if he's not there, to make up our own way of, of living. Or we can face up to the fact that however important we think we are, he's like that lighthouse. Our lives revolve around him, not the other way around. And that's not arrogant to say that if it's true, is it? It's just how it is, because he is the creator. But then so often when people hear that, and when we're trying to, to help them to understand that, and we're saying, look, God is the one that's at the centre of the universe, what they hear is that we're telling them that they're just going to have to give up their freedom and submit to tyranny, submit to a kind of list of, of rules, and, and it's going to be terrible, and it's going to be miserable. But look at what uh, wisdom says about herself here in these verses from, from verse 14. She says, I have understanding and power. By me, kings reign and rulers make laws that are just. Now, when you think about it, of anybody in the world, a king is surely the one who is the most free to just do whatever pleases him, to just make up the rules as he goes along. The king can do that, surely. But when King Solomon was told by God that he could ask for anything he wanted, anything at all. As we've heard before, he didn't ask for riches, he didn't ask for honour, he asked for wisdom because he knew that rules weren't enough. And he knew that if he just made it up as he went along, it would be a disaster. He knew that this wisdom, therefore, was something worth having. Even he, king, great King Solomon, needed this wisdom in order to rule. And it's the same for us in our lives today, isn't it? 
See, actually, we desperately need to know what to do in specific situations where it goes beyond the rules. So there is no rule for who exactly you should marry. There are some you know, restrictions and things, but there's no particular rule for the individual. There's no rule for, for who exactly or what exactly uh, job you should do. And it's possible to make good choices in those things, and it's possible to make poor choices. And sometimes we're in situations and we think, well, I'm not doing anything wrong here. There's nothing in the Bible that says I can't do this. And that can be right. But actually, the question comes back from the Bible, are you being wise? It's a question we sometimes don't want to ask. What direction are you being taken in? But actually, in all of our lives, wisdom is what we need more than just the rules. And that means that, you know, 12 rules for life, the Jordan Peterson thing, is never ultimately going to be an antidote for chaos. We need much more than that. We need wisdom. And again, actually, this wisdom then in Proverbs points us forwards to a person, points us to Jesus. Paul says later on in Colossians, from that reading that we heard, he says, in Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And when you think about it, that is very simple, this in one sense, but this is why we say being a Christian isn't about following some rules or following a system of philosophy. It's ultimately about following a person. It's about following Jesus. Because that is where we find wisdom. And then as we do that, we find not misery, not tyranny, but we find most extraordinary Love, we find favour. Do you see that in verse 17? That is what is on offer here in choosing to go God's way, in choosing to say he's at the centre, the, the lighthouse, revol- my world revolves around him, not the other way around. That is where love and joy are to be found. And that then takes us to that, in one sense, one of the deepest questions you can ask. Why am I here? Verses 22 to 31. Why am I here? And at this point, the, the clock gets wound back to the very beginning of creation, when God made the world. And again, wisdom is personified as being involved in that very creation process. Why should we listen to God's wisdom? Because wisdom is woven into the way the world has been designed and the way the world works. The Christian claim is that the world didn't arrive here by accident. The world is as it is by design. And God is a God who has brought order out of chaos. Before the world began, there was nothing. God was there, but there was nothing, no stuff. And using wisdom as his tool, God created an ordered world. So sometimes people criticise the Christian worldview for being unscientific. But actually the very opposite is the case, isn't it, when you think about it? Because it is the order that God gave to creation in his wisdom that gives us the grounds to do science in the first place. So that means that the laws of the universe that science discovers were put there by God in his wisdom. Do you see how, as he describes how everything was put in place? Um, It it, it was sort of verse uh, 29 in chapter 8. He talks about how the waters didn't overstep God's command. He's in charge. He's, he's ordering things. He's keeping things in line. 
He's making them obey laws. Now, this isn't scientific language. It's not put in those terms, is it? But it's setting the stage for that science to be done. In, in confident that the, world, that the world is not, in the end, a random, chaotic place where nothing can be predicted, but an ordered world that can be studied. So, as we know, we've got scientists here who are, who are Christians. And, and it was true of some of the earliest ones. Copernicus used, he used maths to show that the earth was revolving around the sun. He described God as the best and most orderly workman of all. And Johannes Kepler was an astronomer who called his work thinking God's thoughts after him. So one of the things that means for us as we maybe talk to, 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 to friends who are, who are asking questions about this, and sometimes the objection comes, you know, I can't possibly engage with this. I'm a scientist. I like to think about things from a, a scientific point of view. And one of the questions that's worth asking is, on what basis are you doing your science? Why do you think the world is ordered? What gives you the right to say, I expect the world to, to, to behave in, a, in an ordered way? You know, what, what is it that makes you think the next time you throw a ball up into the air, it will come back down again? What are these laws that you think you're discovering? Where do they come from? Why are they there? You, you can answer all the how questions, you, you scientists, which is a fantastic thing to do. But why? Why should it be like this? Isn't it extraordinary that those things that should be there? Doesn't something that looks like a scientific law, doesn't that actually look rather divine? Because it's sort of holding it in all places, everywhere, for all times. Doesn't it make you just, just at least ask the question where it comes from? To help people to start to see, actually, it's the Christian worldview that enables science to be done with the most integrity. Maybe worth sort of chewing that one over and thinking it through. So why are we here? Well, we're here to take our place within this ordered creation and to worship its creator, who is worthy of that worship. Do you see that, that not only is God the creator, but he created the universe in joy and delight? Verse 30, verse 31. So that just goes against that idea that God is kind of joyless. He's a spoil sport. He wants to suck the fun out of every situation. It's the opposite, isn't it? When he created the world, there was great joy. And that's how then the New Testament speaks of Jesus' role in eternity, joining with his Father in creating. We saw that in the second reading from Colossians. By him all things were made. Wisdom's role here kind of foreshadows that role. That, that, that in, in, all the, the, speak, the speaking of it foreshadows the speaking of, of Jesus as being involved in that creation. And so these verses in Proverbs are pointing to the joy that the Father had with his Son and the Spirit in eternity before creation, and that that joy moved them to make the world, and it later moved the Father to send his Son into the world to save us. Even though we'd rejected him, even though we turned our backs on him, he still delighted in the world and the people that he'd made. So Hebrews chapter 12 says, For the joy set before him, Jesus went to the cross. And once again, there at the cross, because this is the kind of God God is, he brought order out of chaos. See, when Jesus died on the cross, it is the moment of greatest chaos 
in the history of the world. God himself on earth as a man, rejected by those he created and killed. And yet three days later, God raised him from the dead. He brought order out of chaos. And now we are invited to join in that joy when we put our trust in Jesus. So why are we here? We are here to know the God who made us and delight in him just as he delights in us. So those are the big questions that this chapter addresses. Who can I trust? How do I live? Why am I here? And Solomon is pointing us not to a a bunch of rules, not to a philosophy, but ultimately to a person, to Jesus. And it's him, therefore, that we need to keep turning to ourselves. And it's him that we need to keep introducing to our friends. We don't want to talk about a system, a, a, a way of life with our friends. We want to talk about Jesus. We want to talk about him. We want to talk about what it means to follow him. And that wisdom that Solomon speaks of here, therefore, is ultimately found in him. Therefore, what should we do? Well, verse 32, listen. Listen ultimately to Jesus. Each of us faces a choice, don't we? To continue as we are, which Solomon warns is a a decision to harm ourselves, to love death. He puts it in the last verse. Because we're continuing on a path that ends with having to give account for how we've carried on with the crown on our own heads. Or else we can choose life in Jesus, who died so that we might receive God's favor and joy that starts now and lasts through death, through that day of judgment, of calling to account into eternity, to life with him forever. Now, one who found that joy that we've been speaking of was, uh, was Blaise Pascal, who was a, another scientist chappie. He was a French mathematician and philosopher who uh, died in 1662. And uh, he spent his early life running from Christ until he was 31 years old. And then on November the 23rd, 1654, at 10.30 p.m., Pascal met Christ in a profound personal encounter. And he wrote it down on a piece of parchment and sewed it into his coat where it was found after his death eight years later. And it said, Year of Grace, 1654, Monday the 23rd of November, from about half past ten at night to about half an hour after midnight, fire. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of philosophers and scholars, certitude, heartfelt joy, peace. God of Jesus Christ, God of Jesus Christ, my God and your God, joy, 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 tears of joy, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, may I never be separated from him. See, there is that antidote to chaos, there is an answer to the biggest questions that we face in our lives, and it's Jesus. So let's go to him. Let's help others to do that too. And let me pray now for us to do that. Father, we pray that you'd help us to see 
where our view of the world and of reality doesn't match up with the truth. We thank you for how your wisdom shines light on those big questions that we all grapple with. We pray that we would turn to your word to find wisdom. And we pr I pray that you'd help us to engage with those around us who are struggling with these deep questions. And uh, to point them to Jesus. I pray for anybody here who's not yet turned and put their trust in Jesus. And I pray that you would help them to do that. And help them to find the joy and life that lasts through death that you offer in the gospel. Pray for each one of us here that your wisdom would be our greatest delight because we are trusting in Christ. Pray that in his name. Amen.